Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Book Riot Podcast, the weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of book reading. This is episode 34, and we are recording on Wednesday, January 1st. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're the editors of BookRiot.com. Happy 2014, Rebecca. Happy New Year, Jeff. It's not. It's not even 20 hours old, and it's not. Uh, we're we're back on the horse wagon. Whatever this beast is. Yeah, whatever. Whatever <laughs> mode of transport. We're, back on we're off. We're back. I'm so thoroughly <laughs> into vacation right now that I'm not entirely sure what day of the week it is. I, I've had trouble all day knowing <laughs> what what day it is. But uh, we're we're back, and this is not a news show. This is our year interview show, um, and we're going to be giving out. Uh, some awards um, to the stories we've covered and some that actually covered on Book Riot before we actually started the podcast. But uh, we're going to run, run through the high points of the year and uh, not without a low point or two. Um, but did you have reading resolutions? I don't do it. See, I do TBR zero and I'm reading resolutions. I live my life in the moment. I'm like a, a leaf in the wind. Uh, just experiencing whatever comes to me as it comes. I'm going to throw up if I can. Yeah, this is a, uh... I was, uh, I just, you know, maybe I should pause to take in your wisdom. <laughs> I, yeah. uh, I don't really do the resolution resolutions, like to read a certain number of books or a certain number of pages or anything. I track my reading um, with a super nerdalicious spreadsheet. And so I know that like, no matter what I do to try to read more, whether I read one book at a time or I read three books at a time or like whatever it is, I sort of somehow always read between 95 and a hundred books a mm, year. Like okay. there's nothing that I can do to change it short of like hugely changing my lifestyle. And I'm pretty happy with that number. So I'm, I'm not interested in doing that. I, I am going to work on trying to get in at least an hour a day, like an actual hour each day of reading, because I definitely average that, but it's because of like a four hour chunk on Saturday to make up for like mm-hmm. the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, midweek stretch where like I'd only read for 10 minutes before I fall asleep at night. Uh, and so I would like to have, you know, some really deliberate and dedicated reading time in, uh, every day. Okay. We'll that seems how, fair. We'll see how I do. It'll, it'll, right. Who knows? All right. Well, before we dive in, we're going to do our first sponsor and it's a new sponsor this week. It's, um, BookBub. BookBub was cool. I mean, one thing we definitely saw happen over the holiday, um, period, I guess probably starting right after Thanksgiving all the way mm-hmm. till frankly going on right now, wouldn't you say is oh yeah, there's publishers discounting, experimenting with ebook prices like crazy. Um, and BookBub is uh, a website, a service, and an email list basically where you can sign up, um, click which kinds of books you like. Um, they have over 20 categories to choose from. And you can pick multiple ones. And you can get notified about discounted ebooks. And most of them are discounted up to 
I've seen them up to 95%. And I usually 75%. Occasionally free ones. And so you sign up through email. It takes very, I did it myself. It's very easy to do, it takes less than a minute. Um, and then you'll get an email every day with a couple of picks um, that they think will work for you. Now, not everything that gets submitted to them gets thrown into the hopper to get sent out. They have people. Looking at, looking at the submissions and deciding which ones to send out to their users so you're not just sort of bombarded with every single kind of thing you could get. And they say only about 20% of the books submitted, the, deal, the, the book deal submitted, are selected to be featured on the side in the emails. Um, there are, all devices are supported. You've got a Kindle, iPad, Nook, Kobo, Sony, Android, whatever, that's fine. You're not going to have any trouble there. They have more than 2 million subscribers and the service is not that old. I think it started in, in 2012. Mm-hmm. So that's a a huge surge of people doing that, and they said they've they've facilitated over 25 million ebook downloads. So the people are using it and buying it. Um, so I think this is a really good way. You got a new e-reader, you have an e-reader at all. This is something I've struggled with myself, as I know things are getting discounted, but it, they're very difficult for me to find. Usually, it sort of happens upon them on Twitter, and that's basically it. Is the only way I find out about an ebook deal. Um, so this is something you can see every morning. Usually it comes, and never not everything is going to be interesting to you, and you check it out. But there's going to be some things you haven't heard of, um, so you can take a look at those. There have been some things I've heard of uh, and been interested in. I bought a couple of things. I bought the um, Salinger contract by Adam Langer. Oh yeah, it was a dollar ninety nine. So it's very difficult to beat that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, looking, if I hate it, that's a good deal. Yeah, um, right now the um, the first Outlander book by Diana uh, Gabaldon is a dollar ninety nine. Oh, that's good. And that's a big. That, like it's it's a big book, so you would it's much easier to carry that around on your phone. Eight hundred thirty four pages in <laughs> yeah. paperback. You yes, said. yeah. My I received the mass market paperback, and it's eight. Yeah, that one's eight hundred thirty four pages. Uh, so I would download that if you're interested in giving it a shot. It's the first I think of seven books in the series so far, and there's an eighth coming out next year and a stars TV series yeah. based on them. And the, the fans of these things are just rabid. Um, I haven't concluded yet if Outlander is going to be my thing or not, but for a dollar 99, why not find out? Certainly try that. Um, so if you go to bookbug.com book riot, that'll let them know that you came from us and on the website, even before you sign up, I think, or, you know, you do your email, uh, very nominal sign up process. You can browse categories there as well. In addition to the, the daily email and things turn over all the time. Um, when I first looked at it, uh, Italo Calvino's If on a Winter Night a Traveler was on there for $1.99. So, you, you know, if you've got a gift card and you're looking to really stretch your dollars, this is an exercise I thought about doing, um, but I ran out of time and energy to see how far I could get 20 bucks to go uh, after Christmas. Mm-hmm. And you could get, you could get, I would think, 8 to 12 pretty good titles for 20 bucks if you uh, were kind of doing the, the ebook buying version of extreme couponing. But it's not even that bad. It's just oh, I sort want of, that to be a thing. Yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> I'd watch that show. I am that show uh, to some degree. So this bookbub.com slash book riot, uh, I think this is a cool service. Um, and if you buy ebooks and read ebooks and use an e-reader, it's something definitely worth checking out and seeing if it's for you. So thanks to BookBub for sponsoring the show. Yeah, thank you. Shall we? Shall we roll on? Are you yeah, ready? Do we? To worse, do we start with the? You start with bad news. This sort of happened oh, in our start, agenda. Yeah, let's start with something good. Okay, uh, you know, let's start. Well, let, maybe let's just uh, tell me. Did we see what the biggest good. story is? We don't have that on our list, but let's let's go off script for here. Well, what do you think the biggest story of this year was? Uh, I think, well, uh, the biggest... It can be something that's at a different category later. You don't have, hmm. you don't have to pick off. The- well, no, I think like the biggest publishing story 
was the Penguin Random House merger. Yeah, that was I a, agree. a huge deal and really interesting, a, a really interesting decision. Um, I think maybe the biggest reader facing story or thing that actually affected or put, stands potential to affect readers lives was Amazon acquiring Goodreads. That was, yeah. that was interesting. What about you? I, I would go with those two um, in that order. I think the Penguin Random House is, you know, these are giant corporations coming together and the projects they work on, and by that I mean books, take years to go through the pipeline. So it's going to be some time before the full effects of that are felt. Though probably they're starting to be felt in things like um, buying and auctions for titles and um, some layoffs and reorganizations and things happening there. Um, they're going to start flexing their might in different ways that we probably don't even understand yet. But yeah, that's the big story. The big, the big six going to the big five and some other dominoes probably going to happen um, with more consolidation and publishing there as well. So that's, that's the big top line story. And I think you're right in that Amazon acquiring Goodreads has the, been the big reader facing story. Though, frankly, there has been only ripples of effect from that so far. Yeah, really not much uh, has happened because of it, which is a good thing, I think. Um, yeah, on the whole, I mean, they've done some of the, they did the, you can't say bad things about authors mm-hmm. move this year. I don't think we had that on. That was one of the big stories a while ago. Um, that was probably a long time coming, frankly, in my opinion. Yeah, I think we did talk about that a little bit when yeah. they said you can you can continue to review a book negatively, but you can't bring an author's behavior or insults about personality or identity as a person into it, uh, which, you know, really raises interesting questions for authors who have high profile, objectionable Mm -hmm. behavior or opinions with Orson Scott card. Right. Um, but that, that, I mean, it seems to me that with Goodreads, uh, most of the people who use it routinely really love it and appreciate the service that they provide and the community that's available there. And then, when Goodreads makes a change or when Goodreads is acquired by Amazon and you know agrees to be taken over by a massive uh, company that some people don't care for, there's, you know, that, that small but loud opposition right. uh, that makes it seem like there's going to be a mass exodus of Goodreads <laughs> for the thing. And yet, like, the mass exodus just never comes. It, yeah, um, I don't think so. We hear, hear the people going to library thing or Shelfari or some of these other places the day and there's a lot of squawking and boy, if it's really happening, it's very difficult. It's a very difficult leak to detect. So I don't really think that's it's happening. Not to say that like something won't disrupt Goodreads someday, but so far they have not succeeded in disrupting themselves. The juggernaut got juggernauter. That's that's (laughs) for sure. (laughs) Something like that. That sounds like a, um, never mind. (laughs) Okay. So if those are the biggest stories that were stories, let's go to the biggest story that wasn't a story. And I totally agree with you on this one. Oh man. I wrote such a, it wasn't even a rant. I wrote a a post for book riot. That was one of my proudest moments. I think. Yeah. Very Um, level headed. (laughs) Shocking. No, I mean, just this is a high uh, tension. Um, Back in the fall, president Obama gave a speech about the economy and um, building jobs. And he gave the speech at an Amazon warehouse and his giving the speech uh, prompted a slew of articles, uh, some by very reputable publishing publications, including Publishers Weekly, which ran one called Does President Obama Hate Indie Bookstores? (laughs) 
<laughs> Which I just can't, like, I still months later cannot believe that a it's thing. It's just the biggest Booktornet link bait of all <laughs> it's time. It's so absurd. Of course he doesn't. Uh, and when I took it apart, and I know you and I did the Am I Being a Total Jerk uh, check <laughs> yeah, on the post we do sometimes. Uh, before we ran it. Um, when I really thought about it and when we started talking about it in a level-headed way on the site and, and inviting people from uh, you know all sides of publishing to have that discussion with us, it's really, you know, that decision to speak at Amazon wasn't about books at all. And it's a reminder to us that Amazon now, even though they started as a bookstore, are built primarily on non-book sales uh, with books as a loss leader. And so uh, that speech had so much more to do with uh, you know, having a brand that a lot of the American people would rep- uh, would recognize and a brand that a lot of the American people shop with and appreciate mm. and that does employ a ton of people. Uh, and a new economy right. corporation that right. didn't it's, exist, you know, yeah. in, a, in a way that we understand 10, stands, 15 years ago. It stands for a lot of things. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and there have been some interesting reports about working conditions in Amazon warehouses, and I don't know what... Uh, you know, what truth or or not there is to those. And President Obama might not either. But for the purposes of that speech that he needed to give about the economy and <laughs> yeah. creating jobs, you know, I watched the thing a couple of times and took notes on it. And all of the things that he was emphasizing were things that Amazon was doing. Uh, and it just made a ton of sense. And I just sort of couldn't, I just couldn't believe that that was a story for a week. Um, like the president of the American Booksellers Association I know. was rallying people to write letters to President Obama about this decision. Um, it, well, especially and, when he shopped, he high profile shops at independent bookstores. Like he's done that before mm-hmm. yeah, and he did it since holidays, this happened. He's in a different, uh, in a different DC bookstore buying a, a giant yeah. pile of books for the holidays. And then they release that list and that's fun to see as well. But I think what really rankled me about it wasn't just that the headlines were so absurd, but that like really book people are supposed to be better than this. Like we should be <laughs> better behaved. We know better than to right. write headlines like that. Um, and I just, I'm still just boggled. It's so, it, it was yeah, such a it was kind of unbelievable. And then they pulled it right. There was a little bit of, was that well, this it one? It was shelf awareness, um, like broke a story with a quote from somebody and then changed right. it and didn't yeah. issue the correction that they had changed it. They just changed the archives um, without, you know, notifying subscribers that the archives had been changed. There were just all these little pieces to the outrage that didn't quite fall together uh, because the outrage was misplaced. Um, There are certainly battles to be fought between indie bookstores and Amazon, but where President Obama gives his talk about the economy is not one of them. Yeah, that was swinging at phantasms a little bit right there, I think. Okay, so we're going to get to good and bad jobs um, by individual people. Let's start out with baddest bad job. Uh, And this is, I think, has to go in unanimous voting mm-hmm. to David Gilmore, <laughs> oh a novelist and teacher, uh, in a Canadian novelist and a professor who gave an interview to Hazlitt magazine, an online magazine, about him and his teaching and really came off as a, a pretty <laughs> big jerk. And the, the, hot, the white hot center of his jerkiness was about his... He doesn't read women writers. He doesn't teach them. And the, the money quote, I think, is if, you're, if you want women writers, go down the hall. Right? That was, the, yes. that was the real one where he says, you know, he doesn't connect with them. What they talk about doesn't matter to him. So he only teaches things that matter to him. And that's 
white dudes. Um, he didn't and, even say white dudes. He said men. And then you, then all the names he said are all white guys. Well, with so. a no, very notable exception, there's also a really juicy quote about how he wants to read like the manly men, you know, like the oh, yes. Philip Roth manly men. The manliest men. Yeah, right, these yeah. are like the doodliest dudes of white dude fiction. Uh, and then <laughs> a couple paragraphs down, he talks about how many times over he's read all of Proust. Uh, yeah, it's like three times and then once an audio. Like, like oh, not geez. exactly a doodly dude, Marcel. Proust. Well, it's just it's just so so bad. <laughs> he, I think, rightfully got his uh, comeuppance um, yeah. from the literary internet, and we ran some stuff about it. And I, well, and it, then he like issued an apology that wasn't apology really that was an apology. So it was it was just like the biggest non-apology. It's like, yeah, and he sort of condescended to the woman who was doing the interviews. Like, she's oh, trying she to get was a just, nice little career. She going. was trying to get her career going, and she was just there, and I really wasn't paying attention to her. And it was like the the shovel. He just his arms were still moving. <laughs> the hole was just still getting deeper. And uh, you know, we haven't heard a peep from him since, and probably uh, that's all his publicists can bear to to stand he, at this point. Yeah, so. I. I know someone who works at his agency uh oh and, yeah i'm sure <laughs> reports was, are great that was their worst day of of the year you don't want to have to deal that's a very difficult uh, problem so and he was notably he was up for uh one of the major the giller prize the the Gil- Canadian, yeah the canadian, yeah, the canadian award, fiction award big shocker he did not win yeah right uh so anyway david gilmore got the um the donkey of the year award uh <laughs> but let's move on to happier news and I think as we talked about in the last show, mm-hmm. our lit person of the year, our literary hero of the year, Chantal Restivo-Lisi, the... Um, She's the chief digital what, what, officer chief, at HarperCollins. Chief digital officer at HarperCollins. And the reason we picked her is that HarperCollins has been first in line into all the new digital initiatives that both Rebecca and I have been excited about this year. Kindle Match. Um, they've Oyster been on with Scribd. They've been on with Oyster. They were on. Well, there was something. Oh, they've done Narnia.com, CSLewis.com. Um, they did uh, the the partnership with American Airlines mm-hmm. uh, about giving ebooks to people on the flights and giving them samples. Just every time something has come up that we like, well, that's a really interesting, cool idea. I'm glad someone's trying that. Harper Collins' name has been on it, and it, it looks like we read an interview, talked about an interview with her last time or the show before, mm-hmm. where she had an interview with Mashable, and really she was talking about. You know, she's trying to figure out how this works, and she seems cool, and we like yeah, what she's she doing. Yeah, she seems and great. We hope that other dominoes fall, so we and, like uh, Chantal. Yeah, and she comes from a non-publishing background, so yeah. you know, brings an interesting perspective about trying new Music things. Business. Which, yeah, which no. it's you know, and if anybody is positioned to talk about what it means for uh, an industry based on arts uh to survive a digital revolution it's probably somebody from the music industry which is what do you what do you think like five or ten years ahead of what's been happening to books with it digital seen that, yeah and and more fundamental like yeah. not only ahead but also very deeper cuts into how their businesses are run so um interesting to watch harper collins and those who do or do not follow them frankly i mean really maybe go back to the big story of random house and penguin mm-hmm. like when that when that uh, ocean liner starts um changing course then we're really going to start to things change but it could be that harper collins is um out ahead of them a little bit so that'll be interesting to see oh yeah they've got to be it definitely seems they have to be thinking about it that yeah and that harper collins is taking the approach of trying a bunch of things so that they can see which one or two of those things will be long-term 
successful yep. for them. But it yep. does seem like they're making a good test of each thing. It's not a token like, well, we'll give you 10 titles to list on <laughs> this service and see how it goes, which I think it was when Oyster launched. And we saw like, oh, well, this one publisher has like they did it, but they gave them four books. Uh, right. It's is, like barely a toe, right, a toe in the water. Not really a good sample, but it looks like HarperCollins is the, I can't imagine how they wouldn't be out ahead of Penguin Random House and of the other major publishers when the other publishers finally come around to trying these things because they're already going to have like a, at least a year's worth of, of data, data. deciding which ones to really double down on or back out of or uh, change course on. So yeah, that's, that's big. So uh, she's our hero of the year. We're interested in watching her. Good job. Chantal, Restivo, Lisi, and so, well, uh, all the folks the, over at HarperCollins. What's the opposite of the Donkey of the Year award? <sighs> no, this is the uh, thoroughbred, I guess. <laughs> I don't know what the opposite of a donkey is. Um, so we had some, as we always do, we have some author news revelations. Mm-hmm. So we've got a funny one. Uh, we've got a more surprising one. And then I would say a more interesting one. Um, which one is you want to start out with? Funniest, uh, surprising, do, or interesting? Let's do funny. Funniest. Okay, this I remember one's... loving this when the story yeah. <laughs> came out and it was really early uh, in doing the show. I think it was on the second or third podcast, but uh, some you know, wonderful soul at BuzzFeed dug up a song from the early 90s written by our boy Dan Brown hmm. called 976 Love that, <laughs> that, that is in fact a song by Dan Brown about phone sex. <laughs> And you can listen yep. to someone like, you know, pulled it up on SoundCloud. And <laughs> <laughs> if you are feeling hearty and want to Google the Dan Brown phone sex song, you will find it on BuzzFeed uh, and you can listen to it and it will make you giggle. Uh, the BuzzFeed link says, think Barry Manilow meets Michael Bolton. But I laughed so hard that I couldn't even come up with an analogy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know what? I want to leave that one right there. Yeah. There's just nothing else to say. Nothing Dan else Brown, to say. If you're interested in it, go. You can listen to the song. If you're not listening to it, do not listen to it. He's an onion, Don't. man. I think there are just dimensions to Dan Brown we haven't seen yet. Yeah. You can. <laughs> well, I'm not going to go. I'm not going there. All right. So that, that was the funniest author realization. I'm going next to the biggest surprise. All right. Let's do that. And this one has to be J.K. Rowling, a.k.a. Robert Galbraith, right? Mm-hmm. When it came out that J.K. Rowling was rolling. actually rolling dang it um <laughs> most uh most recalcitrant jeff mispronunciation <laughs> goes to jk rowling um when she was ghostwriting the cuckoo's she ghost wrote the cuckoo's calling a pretty straight ahead mystery crime novel using the pen name robert galbraith and it came out because one of her stupid lawyers um, <laughs> got his tongue wagging at a party and told someone who told somebody. That's how that uh, works. And that's and I saw. Did you see that news this week? Uh, maybe you didn't. That that guy got fined a thousand pounds sterling. No, I did uh, not. By some legal body, anyway, over in the good old uh, jolly old it's merry old jolly old England. Sink ships. Dude. Yeah, right. Um, and and sold some books because <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because this thing rocketed up the charts, made our book riot readers list of favorite novels mm-hmm. of 2013. It did relatively well-reviewed when it came out as just Robert Galbraith, but sold almost zero books. We found out like 1500 books Mm -hmm. in six weeks or something like that. Um, And then it, you know, the news came out and she admitted it and she wanted to try it. And a very interesting story. That was the biggest surprise of the year. That was such an interesting story because there was a ton of speculation at first that of course the reveal was just done 
in service of selling yeah. books. And I um, suspected that myself. But I think we wrongly. all like sort of put on our, didn't we have a show titled, what was the JK Rowling JK tinfoil, Rowling tinfoil hat? Hat. <laughs> Yeah, right. We all, you know, got ready to bust out conspiracy theories. Just a little theories. too convenient. It sold a little too few right. books. Right, like it had been out for the right amount of time for people to start wondering yeah. if it was ever going to sell and then that reveal occurred. But really the more that, at least the, between the two of us, the more that we read about it, uh, we, we believe that she did not, want that to be revealed. She wanted to conduct this experiment and see if she could write a different kind of book and have success without her big name attached to it. And so I'm kind of bummed for her that that happened. And I sort yeah. of hope that she'll do it again and get a better lawyer who can keep secrets. Right. Or no lawyers and just write it or something, right. <laughs> something like that. I think she also had the, the 1B award for biggest surprise. It's not really a book surprise, but that there are new movies coming set in the Harry Potter universe mm -hmm. um, based on Newt Scamander, and I can't remember exactly what the name of the book is now, but it's set in the same world. It's not Harry Potter character world related, but wizards and muggles and things of that nature. So that was another big bookish mm -hmm. surprise, even if it wasn't about a specific book. I think the most interesting news, though, is that we've got new J.D. Salinger books are coming yes. over the next few years, and we've got a bunch of them. Um, something about the Glass family. There's five, some, right? Five. There's some nonfiction. There's some short fiction. A whole bunch of stuff. Starting, I think, in 2015, the first one's supposed mm -hmm. to come out. And then every year or a few years after that for the foreseeable future. Apparently, he himself, I read this recently, didn't want them to come out for 50 years after his oh, death. Oh, wow. Well, that wasn't written into the will. So, of course, the estate's right. like, well, maybe you should sell some books now while people <laughs> still care and while we're alive. And while some um, people are writing a biography. Of right. Him. And there's a biography came out, which turned out to be a non-story. It turned that was kind of overhyped. We don't really have an overhyped story. Maybe we do. Um, but that documentary, which turned out to be not that interesting, mm -hmm. uh, frankly. But that, that was the big ongoing story of this giant of 20th century American letters who had been not reclusive necessarily. I mean, he's been around. He wasn't living in a spider hole or something like that. But he had <laughs> publishing. Um, and on his death, shortly after his death, it comes out that there's all this other work long been suspected. I've heard rumors of it even since I was mm -hmm. in grad school and not connected to publishing at all. So there are more than just um, whispers and echoes that there was other stuff out there. But I'm glad to see it's coming out and that it did, even if it was on his timeline, he did want it to come out. Um, I'm always in favor, reluctantly, of a author's work coming out if it exists, even if they didn't want it to, just for reasons of history and culture. But this one has the J.D. Salinger stamp of approval, and that makes me very happy. Yeah, apparently some of those stories have been leaked online. Yeah, there was, a, there was a volume at the University of Texas archive, so it was known, mm. um, but it wasn't available publicly until someone scanned it and put it on right, and, BitTorrent um, or something like that. Chuck so Klosterman known. wrote a really interesting editorial yeah, for his ethicist right. column at, uh, at the New York Times about... Right. You know, the ethics of reading J.D. Salinger's work before it's been published when it's been leaked and you're technically pirating. And there's mm -hmm. the I think the conversations around this are going to be much more interesting than the conversations uh, or the non conversation, as you said, about that, about the Salinger documentary and the biography that came out. Yeah. OK, let's go to some publishing initiatives, things that publishers are trying. We gave kudos to HarperCollins for trying some things and some of the other um, publishers mm -hmm. involved with some of those things. So let's run some of those things. I think our favorite, both you and I would say at this point, and it's early yet, we should say that as well. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that can happen. Yeah, and we, tr we between the two of us, we try to try all yeah, of them. we've tried all of them so far. As Oyster, uh, oysterbooks.com 
uh, unlimited ebook reading, ten dollars a month, iPhone and iPad right now, not Android, though that should be coming. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty good catalog of backlist titles. Um, very good UI and tech experience on your phone or on your iPad. The in-app discovery of titles is really terrific. Very good. Um, an interesting business model in that it's mostly uh, all backlist, mm-hmm. um, but at a very reasonable rate. You can read as much as you want. You can dip in and out as much as you want. You don't have to have like three out and then put them back in or something like that. I, mean, there's, I love that no feeling of commitment or risk. Like yes. I, I have tried so many books on Oyster that I've read like 50 pages or a couple of chapters <laughs> of and just been like, this is not going to do it. But I'm pretty good about quitting books after you know 50 or 100 pages if they're not working for me. But I always feel that little pang of like, oh, but I paid for this. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know I ordered this. I ordered this undercooked fish. I guess I have to eat it now. <laughs> right, uh, but um, that's there's just none of that with oyster. They they definitely get my uh, achievement in reading technology award for the year. Definitely. Um, now, not an. I wouldn't say oyster is an awesome name. It's just kind of a name you recognize. Now, some awkwardly named efforts <sighs> in this space. <laughs> I, I think that my prompted like least, the most ridiculous DMs between us on Twitter. I know we're ever. like what? So, well, let's go with one B first. All right, the Simon Schuster. I don't want to Simon and Schuster UK. Simon Schuster UK has a new, I guess, social community for readers of new adult as the idea, mm-hmm. and they call it the Hotbed. <laughs> which there has been a lot of effort recently to separate new adult from just right. sort of and that seems romance like, plus right i think that was starting to bubble up at the end of 2012 and then yeah. throughout 2013 there was that there, it, it did seem there was a big push to make new adult its own subset uh, or its own sort of not subgenre but its own category of uh-huh. books that lies somewhere between it, it's adult older than young adult but younger than regular adult and uh the many terrible internet editorials were written oh. about <laughs> how it's just young adult books with sex or i mean all sorts of stuff but or it seems adult fiction without concept you know all right, these weird sort of basically don't google editorials about <laughs> <laughs> new adult books <laughs> just so bad so so bad and uh, so this set the new adult movement back i'd say maybe yeah, infinity and, years so this is the piece of the hotbed that's really interesting to me is that it, like simon and schuster uk they should sort of they should know what they're doing mm-hmm. uh and it's a, supposed to be a social media community they have a tumblr they have a facebook page they're they're on twitter and they're paying attention if you say things about them on twitter which i learned the hard way um but it says and like all of the branding around it um emphasizes the sizzling romance of of these new adult books but all the publishers in all the other sort of written media and the conversations they're trying to have about new adult books are like no 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 really it's not just about the sex new adult books are about like that phase of life and these certain types of stories and it's for i guess really they're for readers that are like 18 to 25 yeah i guess um, that have aged out of like you've sort of aged out of who Twilight and the Hunger Games and the John Green books are written for. But you're not ready for a sport and a pastime, I guess. I guess that's kind of the idea. <laughs> yeah, you're or Anais Nin or, right, uh, or yeah. Tiffany Rice or any of like uh, you know contemporary 
erotica writers. I don't know. I don't really know what this is supposed to be a step in between, like in a concrete sense. Um, I, I, and I've only I guess it's not they don't either. Right. Yeah. That's, um, and I, I tweeted something about like, I'm really confused about how all the conversations about this are trying to emphasize that new adult books are, are about much more than the fact that it's young adult characters who have sexy times. Um, and the folks at Simon and Schuster UK to their credit did respond. Um, but it was very, it was that like political non speak of like, well, we're even, we are learning what this is (laughs) as it develops. And we're, you know, we're trying to understand it too. We just pulled this name out of a hat. We have no idea what it means. If you don't want people to think the thing you're doing is only about sex, you should maybe not call it the hotbed. Here's the thing I don't understand. And maybe it's indicative of that double speak that you were getting is like, on the one hand, it seems like they do want it to be about sort of young adult with, more sex in it. It's like mature young adults. Yeah, but they don't want us to have the public perception of it to be that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, I don't know that the people that actually want to sell these books to, I don't know if they care that that's how it's marketed. But there's like this other level of public discourse about it. It's like, no, no, it's more, it's different. It's not, not just that. It's like, well, why can't it be that? Like, what's wrong with that's that? Let, let it be that. People I don't know. write editorials, Jeff, if that's what it right, just is. Right, because it's clearly stopped them that <laughs> this is such well, a good I mean, job I think uh, you, putting you, a moat around this. You hit on two things there. And one was that it's new and different and yeah. publishing, you know, sad is not historically really great at doing new things or accepting a new and different thing right from the start. Uh, And so it is a different, like this is a disruption to how we categorize books and it's a disruption to how people market them and who their target audience is. Um, and, And so I think there's just some of that, like this is different and we don't know what to make of it, but there's also that extreme discomfort in a section of the reading community and a section of just the general population of talking about young people and sex. Yeah. And, Uh, and so it's no secret that there are books being written in which young people have sex, but I think it's really making people feel squirmy and uncomfortable that now we're talking about how there are books with young people having sex and we're calling them their own special thing so that people right. who want to read books in which young adults have sex can find them more easily. <laughs> like, just own yeah. it, man. Like, make the hot bed and make it sizzling. That's and what just I'm saying. Because, like, young adult with more sex, like, that makes sense to me. It does. Like, I've read some young adult and it, they, they basically do, like, the book equivalent of like fading to black when they sort of the couple like lays down on the pillow right, right you know right. that move they do mm-hmm. in movies right when they're cutting it for tv like that happens in divergent it happens in the fault in our star like these big ya titles and don't fade to black or talk about i mean that makes a lot of sense to me as a thing that would sell books so Anyway, so they came with this hotbed. Right. And I feel was like they, they do just need to own it. Like, yes, yeah. this is what this is, and we are going to sell it because clearly there's an audience for it. Yeah. We well, built the hotbed, and we're going to lie in it. If the hotbed was, let's say there's some cognitive dissonance there. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. Between what do they name it, what they call it. The, the New York Times wins the award for – it, it They can't even have the, the faintest – dream of an inkling that <laughs> sickos like you and me would misread. They have this new feature, which is basically puff piece interviews, uh, video interviews with authors on the New York Times book section. And they called it the read around, <laughs> which <laughs> if you know anything about anything, sounds like something else, something else where you replace that first, the D and read with the CH. And that's a different, it just, <laughs> And Don't when it Google comes to like, either, it's like 
Puff Piece Publicity 2 has this weird it's, connotation with oh, it as well. I, mean, I know we slag on the New York Times a lot. We do. But yeah. I also, I mean, that's, I think they kind of deserve it, especially in this situation where it's, We did find out it wasn't just us. Yeah. Because we, we were joking about it on Twitter and right. some other people were like, yes, I saw that. Like, oh it's my terrible. God. Yeah. The New York Times got a new book review editor this year. Yeah. They got a, a female editor for the first time in a while. Maybe not the first time ever. I'm not ever, sure. Ever. ever. Okay. Ever. The first time yeah. ever. Uh, and so there was a lot of speculation about um, what would happen to the, yeah, what would happen to the gender split um, in book reviewing over there in terms of uh, books by men and books by women that got covered. Would she try new things? Would the New York Times book review section get less boring? Uh, and so they created this bookends thing. That's like each week there's a conversation between two, they have a stable of like 10 or 12 writers, yeah. most of them who are like relatively pretentious literary writers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be judgy. Uh, <laughs> why start? Uh, why stop now? And they get like an essay, basically an essay topic. And the two of them have a conversation about it in the pages of the New York times. And like, this was the New York times effort to be less snooty. Uh, yeah. And then they, created the read around, I guess, in an additional effort to be less snooty and to reach some digital readers. I don't know. I mean, um, it's nicely produced video. Like it looks good. And the first, the first was Nicholas Sparks. Which I know. Which, that's also super confusing. It's very confusing. <laughs> very odd. Very odd. The read around. <laughs> <laughs> And execution and uh, branding and uh, just the whole thing is weird. <laughs> okay, um, let's see. What else do we like? Well, let's we do slagged. something. We did not a like thing. So yeah, let's do. Well, let's do the smartest. Let's do a yeah. smart thing. I mean, not surprisingly, Amazon did something smart and uh, ahead of the curve, and they bought Goodreads. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone else should have done it. I mean, it makes sense for Amazon, but it's you know the the, the biggest reaction we saw. This happened in March, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, the Mark biggest Gable. reaction we saw when it happened was everyone going, God, why didn't someone in publishing do this? And the, I mean, the answer to that question as well, I, I, that I think we've both talked about was that like nobody could have like at the, no, at what they were I, valued you know, at I now. said that at first and, but you know what? Like Random House owned by Bertelsmann. That's true. I mean, Harper Collins is, that's Murdoch's company. Like it, so they, it would have to come from a parent company. $150 million is a lot, but Boy, if, if you know. want to beat Amazon at this point and you're a publisher, something like that, you've got to start thinking about like, you, you really have to put your head on straight and start thinking, what is Jeff Bezos going to do in two years that I should do this year right. instead? Yeah. And he's Bezos is thinking so far out. He's playing such a long game that that's challenging, but like, surely there is someone out there who understands how you do this sort of strategy and who understands well, how, a, how, I a don't know, like, because listen, you and I, I mean, we're publishing outsiders, but we're kind of looking in and looking at it um, more and more, they're really focused on book to book, right? Imprint to imprint. They're not, they're not really set up to like go buy a non-publishing company. That's just not something that's in their well, but, I mean, DNA to even do. Goodreads has been a backbone of the online reading community for years now. And so it, it stands to reason that like at some point in the last five years, somebody at Random House was like, they're doing really interesting things. And gosh, the internet is sort of becoming a thing now. No, I understand. But yeah. just like, it's not, it's like, I don't know. I'm trying to think, I can't really think of an equivalent example, but like, uh, if uh, it made like if the NFL decided, you know, maybe we should buy ESPN. Mm. Like it's kind of a similar move, right? 
Yeah. Well, there's not the NFL's not really set up to buy ESPN. That's not what the NFL does, even though it makes all the sense in the world. I'm not saying it doesn't make sense. I think they're not set up to even think about buying right, it. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. Or if someone did, they're like, who do I go to? It's like, you go <laughs> CEO of Bertelsmann, who manages right, yeah, all these different like, things. It, like, the money, shut up about these book review sites. Right, yeah. The money could be found somewhere. Yeah. Um, but it's just that they're not even set up to be thinking about right, that. And I think right. we're starting to see that change. And um, I think so too. Chantal Restivo Alessi at HarperCollins is an indication that we're starting to see that change. That there are going to be people in publishing looking at what's happening in books that isn't necessarily being done by people in publishing. I'm um, afraid it's going to be like, you know, someone, <laughs> it's, it's like the, uh, the, the, I'm trying to like the Swedes just heard that you know what Columbus discovered the new world maybe we should send some ships over there and see what else <laughs> well, it's like, well I, mean, I don't know maybe. that's really how all of these like uh, almost all of the major publishers have some version of yeah. a discovery engine or something you know that's that's attempting to be a Goodreads competitor there's bookish there's this hotbed you know publishers are creating book likes book yeah, likes book li there's yeah there's, some of them are interesting i haven't looked at all of them some most of them, of them are not are gonna die. i mean it's um, but it does seem like that was the and, big tuna and now right, everyone's and like, like well so, i should get a big tuna how am i right, going to so like they tuna? got halfway there they got yeah. to like people are building community about books online and those communities are becoming significant in size and activity and we should be a part of that but rather than looking at the ones that were successful and acquiring which is what amazon did publishing tried to take those and reinvent them themselves um, right. so that they could use them to market books um, which that p.s that's not how a community works it's not a community just because you call it a community right um which is like that's you know if you look at some of the read around stuff and I'm just using them as an example since that's the new one that we're talking about. All the material that they're pushing out is about books that they've published. And that's not how you found a community. That's not how you get people interested and excited to come in and talk to each other and to really, you know, build a passionate discourse about all kinds of books. Yeah. It can't be built on marketing your own stuff. That's not how communities well, and work. You and I have talked about this privately and also I think maybe on the site or some other places. Um, I think when we did the live chat after the Amazon Goodread thing, we may have said this. Um, Goodread succeeded because it solved a reader problem. Yeah. And whatever is going to be next or if there's something going to be next is going to succeed because it solves a reader problem. Um, and as far as I can tell, a compelling reader solution isn't in the name of the game for the things that I've seen so far. Yeah, not to I say agree. they aren't useful and maybe interesting to some people, but you're not like, oh yeah, here's a thing I wish I had before, mm -hmm. and it's really great it exists now, and I'm going to use it and tell some people about it. That thing I haven't seen yet. Right, yeah, I think something like uh, BookBub or, or something similar yeah. to that, we're seeing a lot of those you know, services pop up that help people aggregate the books. On. I think there's something that you can like insert your Amazon wish list and it will notify you when those right. books we go on sale. That. I don't remember the name of that one. Yeah, yet. I don't remember that one either. But something, I think it's going to be something in that area. That no, solves, Oyster solves kind of a reader problem in title script. They solve different kinds of reader problems. Right. It's this, uh, if you're, if you're a publisher and you're trying to solve your own problem, but you're telling readers, look, we built this thing for you. Yeah. Not <laughs> going to work. It's disingenuous and it's not going to work and yeah uh, you know it's dis it just doesn't work and, <laughs> it just doesn't uh, stephanie anderson who goes by book of war um on twitter and tumblr wrote a really uh, solid and thoughtful response she used to be a bookseller and now she is a librarian and on her tumblr which is book of um you'd probably have to scroll back to like early december but she wrote a really thoughtful response to a publishing perspectives piece about yet another book discovery platform and how uh, in her many years of experience working with readers she's yet to meet 
a person who really loves to read, who also routinely has trouble figuring out what to right. read or yeah. where to get books, um, that discovery doesn't. And we, we hear the same thing from our readers that it's not finding out about books. That's the problem. It's like narrowing down your massive TBR. Right. List. I think that's right. Like sub discovery or, yeah. de- or deciding maybe mm-hmm. might be a better way of thinking about it. So, all right. Um, let's see. So that was a big story. One story that let's do this one quickly that we hear from some, <laughs> sometimes is that going on a book tour is just so hard. Wah, wah. That you know to fly out and talk to fourteen people in uh, Overland Park at the Barnes and Noble <laughs> there, and then get on a plane and do it again and answer the same questions. Like uh, it's just one of those things. Like it might be true that a book tour is hard, but boy, no one cares. Yeah, this is my editorial that should never be written <laughs> ever again. Yeah, um, we don't want to see that one. Adam Mansbach wrote one earlier this yeah, year. Yeah, that's right. And, um, Lionel Shriver wrote yes. one in November. <laughs> That's right. And, like, seriously, you are best-selling authors and you're taking to like internet space and taking up column inches of reputable publications to talk about how difficult it is to go out no and talk cares. about these things that you wrote that people love reading, that they've paid millions of dollars in total to have access to. I don't and understand why this is a st- like who just, is someone reading or someone reading these? Like who cares about this? I don't know. I, I see them get passed around in like the circle jerk of literary Twitter. No. You know, where other writers are like, oh, this is so true. And I'm sure that it's tiring to go on book tour. I don't want to diminish that. Sure, at all. traveling like, sucks. Right, Welcome and, to the world. Right. If you're an introvert and you do a mostly a, a job where mostly you spend your days in a quiet room by yourself writing stories about people who don't exist. Yes. Going out and like traveling from city to city for several weeks and talking to people would be tiring and it would be difficult. But first, it's part of your job. And secondly, it's a huge privilege that tons of people dream of doing and they will yeah. never get to do. And also, saw- no one feels sorry for you. I think I saw Maureen Johnson respond to this on Twitter saying, you know, it's she's right. I think it was the Shriver one. She's right. But it's also sort of a my diamond shoes are too tight problem. Yeah, like, exactly. It's a little hard to listen There's to. There's a great um, – Ann Patchett put out a collection of essays this year called um, This is the Story of a Happy Marriage. Mm-hmm. And one of the essays is about um, – an experience that she had on book tour when she was a young author sitting at a book festival at the hotel bar after a long day with a much more experienced author who said to her, like, listen, I know this is hard, but the only thing worse than being on book tour is not getting to go. There, there you go. On book tour. That's right. Um, so Please, we're, just don't we're, do we're it gonna, anymore. <laughs> we want to bury that one uh, down in the pit of uh, editorials about new adult uh, right. and never to see the, the sun or the stars again. All right. Do our second sponsor. Who are these guys? Who are these these jerks? (laughs) We're taking our second sponsor spot for ourselves. We're We're the jerks. So we talked a few times uh, in the fall about Quarterly, which is a service to which you subscribe for $50 a quarter and you receive a box once a quarter uh, from a contributor collaborator. Uh, And Book Riot is one. We sent out our first quarterly box in mid-December to 800 subscribers. uh, And it included an awesome book and a bunch of other stuff. The book had notes uh, from the author that are exclusive to Book Riot that you can't get anywhere else. Um, We do happily have 50 extras of those that uh, we'll tell you how to get later. But subscriptions are open for our second box. Second one. Which will ship at the very, either the very end of February or the first week of March. I don't have the dates in front of me now. Um, But you will be able to get at at least one book in each of these boxes and a whole bunch of other bookish stuff. We're picking, you know, books that we love, but that have maybe flown under your radar. Uh, So if you trust us and you're up for trying some new things and we're working with publishers, we're working with, um, 
you know, people who create cool art and products around books. The first box included a notebook created by a company called Obvious State that had an E.E. E. Cummings quote and a really pretty design on the cover, some pencils that had literary quotes on them, you know, sort of that book fetish stuff, all yeah. those, all those things. We, we're doing these if we would be thrilled to get them. I think that's the easiest way oh, to say yeah, We're I book knew, nerds. I knew all the stuff in the box and I yeah. was still excited Rebecca when it came. Did, Rebecca <laughs> and she asked some of us, but, you know, we we're picking stuff here that were like, yes, we would like to get this. Let's right. have our folks and get it's it. been really fun. Um, a book riot fun. reader made a video of herself opening it. Response has been great. It's overwhelmingly been, it's just fun been to really see people fun open them and, up. And, uh, and we're working really hard to pick great stuff that we yeah. really want to share with you, but also to make sure that there's great value in the box and that everything comes out, you know, worth more than $50. So you're getting your money's worth. But if this sounds like a thing that you're into, you can go to quarterly.co slash products and you'll see Book Riot right there in the center. We're right next to Coco, uh, Ice T's wife. Nice. <laughs> it's good placement. Uh, and you can subscribe for 50 bucks. Uh, give it a shot and we will send you a box of awesome every quarter yeah so what's it where should they go what what, what they should uh, go to quarterly.co slash products products and we're right there and uh, by the time this show comes out we're going to do the full reveal um, on book riot of all the stuff that was in the first box with links to the place where you can buy one of the extra 50 while those supplies last and answer a bunch of questions on monday the 6th uh so by the time the show is out if you're listening you might uh if it's the sixth or after you can head over to book riot as well and look for that big reveal and then the second box you can sign up for 50 bucks surprise of cool book related things including at least one book for your adventure that doesn't mind reading some stuff that you don't know what's going to be and you like book-related stuff, this is something you should check out. So thanks to us for sponsoring us. We're very generous well, and thankful and at the same time. And thanks to all of you who did subscribe to oh, the first absolutely. one we heard from I folks, know a lot of you on the podcast. Uh, who heard about uh, it on the show. Um, we really appreciate your, your trust and you're going along for the ride with us and we're having a really good time doing really it. Really fun to do. Okay. Uh, let's try to wrap this up here in 15 minutes or so. So you want to pick? What do you want to do? Where do you want to go? Hmm. Well, I think one of my very favorite, let's, these two sort of go together. Oh. My, my favorite moments that we spend to je- together, Jeff, are oh. when, <laughs> when, when things get a little awkward. Yep. Uh-huh. Uh, and one of those was when a Reddit person wrote a poem that was Fifty Shades of Grey in the style of Dr. Seuss. Is that our first Fifty Shades of Grey reference on the show today? I, the I over-under it, was uh, three, so we got I, two more to yeah, do. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Okay, there we go. <laughs> uh, but... I had fun reading that on the show and giggling and imagining you sitting in Brooklyn blushing while it happened. I have uh, no comment uh, for the record. <laughs> I could feel it. I could just feel the blush, <laughs> the blush occurring. Uh, but so here is the beginning and we'll... No, we'll, oh, really? We're doing this? Okay. okay. Oh, just a few. It. Just a few. Right. Here there are spoilers of a lewd little tale about a man named Christian, his last name not Bale. Oh, the places you'll go under whip doozles and chain flams, into cross whistles and jim jams, into bondage and bruising and handcuffs and lug rams, whatever those are. <laughs> and it, it continues for quite a while. It, well, it's if you hysterical. need me, I'll just be showering for the next six weeks. <laughs> if, you, uh, if you need something to recite... I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if you have a if you have a, a, a school age child who has one of those have to recite a poem assignments, please please oh, do will, not pick this. Oh, that would be so great. Pick it, yeah. record it, send it to us. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So that's squirm inducing one. Squirm inducing two is a whole series of stories uh, that started out as 
the revelation that there's dinosaur erotica mm-hmm. out there. There is. Which is basically dinosaurs having mostly non-consexual sense with women, <laughs> human women, believe it or not, um, which led to, I think, a more interesting phenomenon of ebook retailers taking a look at what they were selling and deciding if they were cool with some of this stuff. Yeah, that was the first time that we'd really seen like sort of massive... Yeah. Uh, I don't know if curation is the right word. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I've been thinking about this recently, and maybe this is a place to talk about it. But it kind of, again, I don't want to demonize this stuff too much. But I felt like there was sort of a moment of lifting up the rock and seeing really mm. what was being sold there. And Amazon and Kobo and Waterstones and some other people were like, uh, some of this has to go. Right. And a lot of it was underage stuff and rape stuff. Right, rape stuff and incest stories. But some of it was the dinosaur stuff and whether or not bestiality and all this this splitting of hairs that I don't want to approach, frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, what I was thinking about is how one thing that's been talking about is self-publishing has taken the gatekeeping function sort of away from big publishers, which I think to some degree is true. Mm -hmm. But I think that doesn't mean that if the floodgates are open – there's still a drain well, is what I'm getting at And it here. sort of just put the gatekeeping job, yep. it, that gatekeeping job still exists, which is what we were seeing here, but now it's the retailers. Well, that's not, it's like, it's not yeah. a gate, it's a drain and you're right. just pulling the and, sludge out of there. Right and, at Kobo, I think uh, Kobo's person made a statement that was like, our good friends at Kobo, we right. should say they do a lot of sponsoring of the site. Yeah, if you're mad at us for taking the like rapey incest stories off, too bad because we're yeah. not going to sell those. We're just not comfortable um, doing that. You know, it, it always brings up, particularly, you know, from like authors whose work was pulled from these retailers, um, the, the defense cries of this is banning or this is censorship and we talked on several episodes uh, as this came up and as the story developed about how it's it's not censorship it's businesses determining um, what they will and won't sell based on what their customers demand or don't want to interact with and the cost of offering these things they've determined is greater than the benefit of offering them yeah, in, long-term in, damage right, to, in and a, lack of confidence in a financial and in a financial and a moral or legal sense. Um, they've made that determination, which is totally a retailer's prerogative to do. Um, it was really interesting to see people take deep dives into like the Amazon store and what they could find there. Yeah. Um, so and that wasn't really, it's a square It wasn't good or bad on our part. And like from our sort of moral yeah. point of view, it's just sort of interesting to see. Let's do a bummer thing. Okay. Um, two bummers. The two biggest bummers for me, well, a continuing rash of high profile book bannings. Mm-hmm. The two that stood out to me were Invisible Man um, by Ralph Ellison was banned for a while in North Carolina, though that was overturned because people got pissed. And then the bluest eye was banned in a school just in Ohio, believe it or not, which is Toni Morrison's home state. Mm-hmm. I guess the other high-profile book banning this year was Eleanor and Park, right? Uh, which was in Illinois. Um, did that one get overturned eventually? I don't remember. I think it did, and I of think course, it did as you well. know, like Lori Hall Sanderson's books, yes. uh, her book Speak, Speak in particular is like constantly being banned, and she's Sherman constantly Alexi. writing really badass Sherman responses Alexi to it. Sherman had one challenge. Neil Gaiman's Stardust was challenged mm-hmm. in New Mexico. That one was overturned. But it's particularly with like with the with Invisible Man and the Bluest Eye. These are like pillars of the literary. Canon. Invisible Man got me going. 
That one really well, got me. Yeah, that I read that for the first time oh. this year because I can only take so much of you saying this is the most important <laughs> book of the 20th That's century right. before all of my guilt engines. I'm going to come up with a new drum to beat. To right, get they just, something all else. the guilt engines were firing at like 25 by then. Yeah, I was right. like, okay, fine, I'll read it. And it was amazing. Uh, and the bluest eye... The, the bluest eye one, I think, is really the one that got me fired mm. up because um, Picola Breedlove, the main character of that book, is a young girl who is raped by her father. And it's not a graphic scene, but it's one of the most gut-wrenching uh, portrayals of um, of child abuse that I've read in fiction. I've read the book like half a dozen times, and it still just turns my stomach, no, even knowing what's going to come up. Um, and the the people coming after it we're talking about those scenes as if they were sexual and titillating uh, as yeah, teenagers, you know, we can't, we can't expose our children to this sexual um, material, which just, just know <laughs> that's not, yeah. that's just not how that works. Yeah. So those are bummers though. I think most of them turned out the, for the good guys. Um, I'm not sure about all of but them, like, but a lot of them did get turned can around. Can we for just the good not guys. have these conversations anymore? I, we're going to have to just, I guess we just have to keep doing this. Uh, I don't know. Um, let's go to biggest melodrama, which I don't have on the board, but we have oh. to talk about this. The, the ongoing saga of the Harper Lee estate, oh. which it, the, 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 the water got running with, um, Harper Lee suing to get the rights to, uh, to kill a mockingbird back from her son-in-law who had somehow wrested it away from her. Mm-hmm. And then apparently her estate going, then turning around and suing the, Harper Lee Museum in Monroeville um, for damages and lost income and royalties and the, this a whole mess of intellectual property infringement and protection. I think wrongdoing mostly on non Harper Lee's part, mm-hmm. but there's a little bit towards the museum. I don't. I'm not in love with um, from the Harper Lee camp, though. I don't think you can have to kill a mockingbird.com. If you're not, yeah. if you don't have the copyright to kill them, I you, just I'm sorry, don't know museum. how that works. I, you can't do that, but I think the museum should still exist in Harper Lee. Anyway, that's been the longest ongoing saga. I'm sure we're gonna have no, more news about that in 2014. Yeah, I think we talked about the original the story about trying to get the rights back on the very first. Is that right? Show. So that's back in May. So we've been following this story for nigh on seven and a half, eight mm-hmm. months now. Um, so that's been the biggest ongoing mellow. Just the days of our lives. Is the story is just gonna keep going? and it's never going to get over. Um, let's do some happy-making innovations. So let's, this is kind of a grab bag. My big happy-making moment of the year was when the FAA decided to finally allow the use of electronic devices during takeoff and Yay. landing. And I've flown a couple of times since then, and I feel like I'm getting away with something. <laughs> leaving, well, I mean, you were six months ago. But right, no yeah, longer. leaving my device on during takeoff. and reading all the way through takeoff. Uh, yep. It's great. I'm, happy, I'm just happy that that has happened, uh, mainly because there was no science to indicate that it shouldn't <laughs> be happening. <laughs> I like some uh, data behind the restrictive so, rules. Yeah, speaking please. of airports, another one we saw is a story about a Kansas State librarian who created an ebook initiative for airports in the Manhattan, Kansas airport. Um, there's a station where you can check out ebooks from the local library and apply for a library card and load up your e-reader with library books there, which we think is awesome. Yeah, we thought it was cool that she recognized that people who were traveling would maybe want last minute reading material and they wouldn't necessarily want a print book or that putting a selection of like 20 print books wasn't the best thing you could do when you could provide them access to your whole ebook library. Right. I'm sure Hudson booksellers and the Manhattan Airport was thrilled. <laughs> uh, and then the last one, uh, the rise, the first, um, well, this is, maybe this is what you meant, but the first, mm-hmm. uh, 
library vending machines have gone live this year. The first one was in Norman, Oklahoma. And the next one is somewhere in Minnesota, I believe. Um, but they are basically standalone installations that look like a giant vending machine yeah. full of books that if you're a patron uh, and a, and a card-carrying patron of the library in good standing, you can go there and punch in D6 and get, uh, uh, let's see, Inferno by Dan Brown, the <laughs> biggest selling adult fiction title of 2013, it turns out. Um, which I just think is great. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on library budgets, um, and I am not one that's going to advocate both for my own health, uh, but also for my own morality, <laughs> that we get rid of uh, $1 of library or librarian funding. But as an extension of what the library can do at a good cost, this is really cool. Um, they have, they also can function as wireless hotspots. Um, they have security cameras. They have, some of them have benches where you can go read right there. Um, they can hold up to 400 different medium items, so the selection is pretty good. They can turn them over quickly in response to what's being checked out. So you can have a, a physical presence to distribute physical items without building a new branch, especially as the demographics of cities change and you have new suburbs and different places open up and new subdevelopments. Um, I know this is especially true in my hometown where the main branch of the library was a pretty far drive from where I grew up, so it was very hard for us to get down there. Um, but if there had been a... Um, library vending machine within, you know, a 10 or 15 minute bike ride for us. Well, that would have been a game changer. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine getting on your bike and just like pedaling down? And No, I can't. It's a beautiful dream that I, I wish I would have had. binged on the babysitter's club. My calves and... would have been just magnificent. <laughs> wow. Magnificent calves. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so that's something I hope to see used judiciously and smartly. Yeah, and I, I think it's worth pointing out, like these are we think these are cool because they're interesting developments and it's fun to see libraries problem solving in a really creative fashion about how to provide books to their communities. Like the one in Norman, Oklahoma is accessible 24 seven, uh, which where else in Norman, Oklahoma, can you get a book at like three o'clock in the morning? Where else? Anywhere. Yeah. It, I, and when we cover these stories online, sort of inevitably someone responds <laughs> and is like, Oh, well, if everything is a vending machine, then it's the end of libraries. <laughs> like that's it's just because it's a vending machine. doesn't like Doritos. Right. And like, don't that's, have to eat right, and that's not it, that's not it they're not intended to replace libraries right. libraries aren't trying to work themselves out of a job they're they're trying <laughs> to serve their communities and the way that their communities needs are evolving and so who knows if this will be a long lasting thing mm -hmm. but it's certainly worth trying out and uh, and seeing which communities respond to it and i think uh you know the point you made about it being really useful in communities where the library is farther away like it might make the, it might seem the most intuitive to put these in big cities where a lot of people yeah, would have access to them, is. but it really makes more sense to put them in places where the libraries are spread far apart. Like we've far. talked about yeah. um, people who live in what we call the book desert, where mm. they don't have a bookstore or a library within a good, you know, an accessible distance to them, either walking, driving, or taking public transit. And how those people, for, for those people in particular, Amazon was a great boon to be able to have access to all the books that they wanted delivered straight to the their door when otherwise it was not convenient to get to books at all. Vending machines is a smart way to, to go about that. Yeah. So, in the, I mean, it's going to sound expensive, but really it's pretty economical. I think they're around 200 grand, hmm. which, you know, compared to building even a small branch library and staffing it uh, is very reasonable. So those were our favorite innovations. Should we end there? There's a couple other things on the board, but maybe we should stop. Yeah, with let's end there. That's there. a good that's, one. That's awesome. Should we do our favorite books real quick? Sure. Yeah, you go. Let's, I'm going to do one fiction, one nonfiction. Does that sound cool? Sure. 
Yeah. You go first uh, because I'm staring at my reading list. For I've, last said year this, going, I've said this already oh, on the show. So I'll go fiction for uh, uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's uh, Americana. Um, I thought it was beautiful. Our, our friend and coworker, uh, Clint, is reading it right now. He loves it. Um, one of the first people we signed up for Book Riot, Greg Zimmerman, read it and loved it. Uh, and she was sampled. Her TED Talk on mm. feminism was sampled on Beyonce's new album. So as always... Uh, I'm ahead of the pop culture curve. Um, I mean, obviously. A variable canary in the collective consciousness of uh, 20th century American life. Um, so that's Americana uh, with an H on the end by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. That's mm-hmm. my favorite book of the year. Uh, no- novel of the year. Okay. I don't know. Come on. I know. I Go really... nonfiction then. You okay, know nonfiction. I, I know I what do. you're going to speak Yeah, my favorite nonfiction, which I've talked about on the show a couple of times was uh, Smarter Than You Think uh, by Clive Thompson, which is about how technology is changing our minds for the better, uh, which I didn't think could have landed at a better time uh, in the cultural conversation about I particularly... I this in 2014. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I might get it on audio and listen to it again. I, I read it. And, Did you read and, it? Does Clive read it or somebody else? I don't know. Yeah, I'll find out. Uh, I read it digital. Um, but so he's a longtime science and tech reporter. He writes for Wired. He writes for the New York Times Magazine. He has been doing this for a long time and paying attention to technology. And this is sort of the response to Nicholas Carr's The Shallows and yes. a response to the spate of Jonathan Franzen essays about how the Internet is the end of all of us. And so Clive Thompson pulls back a little bit farther and is like, OK, let's get some historical perspective here. Every time there's a major development in how we interact interact with each other, people cry out that it's going to be the end of humans interacting with each other well. Um, We did it about actually the development of paper books. We did it about the telephone. We did it with texting. And now we're seeing it about the internet. Um, But really, none of these things is ever borne out as the end. And also, none of them has ever been borne out so far as the solution to all of our problems. Um, And the internet is going to you know fall in that middle way, but it's enabling us to do many things that we couldn't do before. It's allowing us to create faster and to collaborate with people all over the world. And he pulls a lot of great data um, from studies about how we work together. This isn't neurology. It's sort of a social uh, look at technology and the internet in particular. There's examples from chess. There's stuff from science. Our own Brenna Clark Gray, who is a professor uh, in Vancouver is quoted uh, in one of the chapters for a study that she conducted. It was really interesting. Um, And it felt, you know, it felt true to me because I know, I I know that this is true in my life, that the internet allows me to collaborate creatively and to bump up against ideas that I would never have had in my my day-to-day life. To put it up mildly, I would say for me as well. (laughs) Right. Um, You know, you interact with all sorts of people. If you go online for a like really strange niche, you know, like a small niche interest group um, and where the only people, the only thing you have in common with all those people is that one interest, but you're going to have conversations with them about things that aren't that one interest. You'll be exposed to a lot of people who are different from you where in our day-to-day lives and our communities, we don't tend to do that for ourselves very well. Um, it's, it's just really smart. It's very thoroughly researched. Um, I tried to interrogate myself the whole time about like, do I love this book just because it confirms what, right. like, what I think is true? what I know to be true in my experience. Um, and I really think that that's not the case. Um, he, Clive Thompson is on to something and it's, uh, it's just really, 
it's a wonderful book. I think particularly if you're interested in how technology is, is changing us and it feels like it's an interesting thing, or if you're skeptical, if you've been nodding your head in agreement with the Jonathan Franz and Nicholas Carr, the internet is ruining us. Maybe expose yourself to the other side of the argument. Um, very yeah, good. That's I'm reading my favorite that. One. Looking forward to that. Um, my favorite nonfiction of the year is something you also read. And I think you like too. Uh, so good. They can't ignore you by Cal Newport. Um, yeah, I just finished that actually. Yeah. And it's not perfect. It's not a perfect book, but it's central claim is one that I think is really interesting. And it's an antidote to that old chestnut of, um, follow your bliss mm -hmm. and do, you know, do what you love and you'll, or you'll never work a day in your life, that sort of thing. Um, and his assertion is more get good at something, get really good at something and you will find something interesting and happy making to do with it. Does that sound like a fair yeah, it's the, abstract of the, of the book? The the most interesting thing I, I recalled from it was that the massive like sociological studies about people who are happy in their jobs show that the, like the single highest predictor of having a job that you love and that you feel is a calling is the length of time that you've been in that right, job. Exactly. Um, and then they, he pulls interesting case studies like Steve jobs did not become Steve jobs because he set out to follow some passion. He like made a bunch of stabs at things and then he took some interesting risks along the way. And then as saw an he, opportunity and right, got good at it. Yeah. As he got really good at the one thing that he did um, more I think that's Sort of, it's about this chain that happens. Like when you get really good at a thing, opportunities open up for you to do that thing, but to do it in ways that you have more freedom and more options. And as that chain continues to, you know, like run in circles around itself, you get better, you get even more options and more freedom. And the more freedom that you have, yeah. you know, ultimately, the more you enjoy your work to, you know, to be creative, to have control over it. Um, that book would have been life changing for me five years ago. <laughs> I think in, to some degree, I don't want to say it's life-changing, but I think it's something it's worth keeping in mind for me as well. And especially, I think it'd be worth giving and thinking about with high school and college students, especially sure. especially since you know I, I teach 18-year-olds and I was once one uh, back when the earth was still cooling. And you know, one thing we do in high school and college especially is I want to be a noun, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of how we think about our careers. And the kind of difference here is more thinking in terms of verbs. Like what do you do that you're so good at that you're exceptional? And that can you know, lead you in a bunch of different directions. Well, for example, you might know a lot about one of the case studies where you might know a lot about um, uh, what was it? It was uh, um, clean energy credits, yeah. right? One of these guys who got a degree and did a study about clean energy credits and there's a lot of opportunity to trade these things and he developed expertise in clean energy trading around the world. Well, that turned into basically he became an expert that then had marketability in all sorts of different directions, one of which was venture capital. So he didn't set out wanting to be a venture capitalist, um, but he set out being interested in one thing and so interested in it that he got really good at mm -hmm. it. And if you're really good at something and even really specific things, they can lead you in a whole bunch of different ways and take you on a whole bunch of different courses that may have nothing to do with the noun um, you envision yourself as. And so this, as someone who um, is on a podcast right now and uh, works on a website, <laughs> I mean, I can say to some degree yeah. that this might be confirmation bias, but you know, some of it is spending a lot of time thinking about books and writing and ideas and trying to get good and um, at, at certain things and getting better all the time at other things and not worrying so much about what the end goal is 
but putting enough tools in your chest, you can do a lot of different things yeah, I th- um, I think and be open to whatever opportunities are available at all times. The point that he makes too, is that if you, when we send young people out like to follow their passions and find a job that fulfills their passion, that's sort of an impossible task. Right. You know, like no, no job is going to be enjoyable 100% of the time and well, and what were you passionate about? Like, right. it about like snowboarding and, and Metallica. It's like, right. well, that's, so I mean, it, I don't yeah, know so like it leads to people, you know, trying, starting a bunch of jobs that they keep leaving to find, to go to another job that they think is going to fit their passion more because the first thing didn't, didn't actually satisfy their passion, even though they thought it would. And you're, you're chasing after something that you're not going to catch because the thing doesn't exist. Um, but that instead, if you're like, well, I'm doing this job. I'm really good at some of it. Um, some of the parts are really boring, but I'm going to push through those and get really good at those too. A lot of it, I think, is also just about like endurance and, and perseverance and developing your skills, but knowing that sometimes developing your skills also means just doing the things that you don't just, enjoy. Right, really, and doing it a lot. Yeah, just being practicing really, and getting better. Being good at the boring stuff. There's yeah. That's really valuable too. Yeah, that's right. I know that's true. All right, enough <laughs> stalling, Shinsky. <laughs> okay, so I couldn't pick a favorite oh, come fiction. on. <laughs> I can't believe so, this. I'm going to cheat. Coward. No, no, no. I'm just going to cheat a little bit because in in book rages. Yeah, that's what dude, that's what book rages <laughs> is for. That that whole thing is just it's just book adultery. Okay, well, so we talked about you and I did teasers. Rebecca's once, other so... great podcast, book rages, which you should all listen to. They had their end of year, and they're supposed to pick five each, and I think I think maybe zero of the four of them. Picked, oh yeah, no one even five. even single digits. Anyway, yeah, there's always cheating so, on the book rages end of come year. On. Okay, so I've what, talked just about. Just give, give me one. Just give me one. Uh, you don't even have to say it's your favorite. Just one. Okay, a novel that I really loved this oh, year. Oh Jesus. Okay. <laughs> really loved that I. It's one of the most recent reads for me and that i think is under people's radars. oh here it is okay yeah. i know what this is right. going to be you do i think so equilateral oh no i've wrong Duh, dead wrong wrong okay sorry <laughs> okay now up. i want to know your guess i thought you were gonna say one upstairs one upstairs oh yeah but i already talked about that yeah, yeah fine, 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 fine. uh so equilateral by ken kalfas which um jen northington who is uh, my colleague on the book rages podcast recommended uh and it's bonkers uh it's set in the late 1800s about a uh, he's a scientist like mathematician guy who uh at that time that people are pretty sure that they are seeing civilizations growing on mars like through their not so fantastic telescopes and uh, so he has determined the length of the day at which mars will be optimally positioned to view earth and if things are being constructed on Mars, then there must be intelligent beings there that are constructing them. And so Earth needs to send a message to Mars that we are intelligent too. Uh, and so we can't build something that might look accidental. So he decides that we're going to build an equilateral triangle and it will have to be a perfect equilateral triangle. <laughs> and of course, it will have to be huge because it has to be seen from Mars. So you're out in Egypt in the desert where each side of this equilateral triangle is like hundreds, if not thousands of miles long. And they're, they've got 900,000 men, slaves, basically, um, pouring pitch to create uh, the edges, the three sides of the triangle. And then and you weren't kidding when you said this was bonkers. <laughs> it's bonkers. And when Mars reaches the optimal position, they're going to light the sucker on fire. <laughs> and... 
<laughs> and then the people in a great tradition of not job dudes <laughs> right. setting it on fire as right. the end goal. So, and like the guy is sick the old scientist is sick and he's sort of coming in and out of weird spells and he has this great uh female assistant who is secretly in love with him but he never notices because he's too busy falling for the young women around the camp uh and then there are the like political guys this project is being funded by like the major kingdoms of europe and so the political guys are concerned about how the timing comes off and how they can't have dumped all of their people's money into this project if it's not actually going to work and all sorts of insane things happen it's a relatively short novel i read it um on my device in a flight last week um pretty much in one sitting and i just kept like my i just what's the author's name ken kalfus k-a-l-f-u-s equilateral it is just bananas in the best possible way it was it was a really fun read i would have missed it if not for jen mentioning it on the show i don't think i heard about it anywhere else in 2013 but um cool i like that tons of fun it was it was really really great weird reading experience (laughs) (laughs) all right well that's a wrap on 2013 that's it. Who knows what? Tw- I mean, I can't even guess. Knows what twenty fourteen is. I mean, we're not even. We can't we're not even going to try. But uh, you'll be um, on vacation next week. Yeah, and I'll I'm going to be on. We have a special guest. guest. Rebecca will have a special guest. As always, you can find us at bookride.com. Right now, we're running some of the best stuff from uh, what we did in the back half of twenty thirteen. So you can catch up with us there. I'm on Twitter at Reading Ape. You are on Twitter at Rebecca Shinsky. S C H I N S K Y can find us on itunes if you want to rate or review the show that is super good fantastic fun times you can email um, for us, us at podcast at bookriot.com with thoughts suggestions if you try out any of the stuff that we talk about on the yes, show if you give we book always want to know a shot uh, we'd love to hear about it uh, and thank you to bookbub for sponsoring yes. you can go to bookbub.com slash bookriot to check them out if you're interested in our quarterly box that's quarterly.co slash bookriot slash products sorry quarterly.co slash products All right, that's it. So bring it on 2014. We're ready for you. We'll talk to you soon.